started so I can uh, get people engaged. So this is our first post-summer uh, aid seminar, so September aid seminar. So uh, people are back in town. And so today I've got the privilege of introducing Dr. Clayton Hard, who's coming to us from Boston. He's talking to us uh, on preventing HIV or MSM. Uh, Dr. Ard did his initial training at uh, Washington University and then moved to Boston. Presidency and then fellowship uh, in Boston and stayed on, where he's currently a faculty member in the division of and also an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, uh, Dr. Ard has particular interests in LGBT health education, STIs, which we're going to hear from that today, as well as the uh, topic for the whole day of prevention. So let me just mention some quick logistics, and then I think we're good to go. So for those who need, I don't know if this is posted, maybe I'll write it up. We need CME, it is, the code is Q, that's in clean, Z, Zebra, N, uh, Nigeria, 6. Um, yeah, nurses claiming CME need to stay here for 80% of the time. And uh, lastly, Dr. Art has no conference of interest for answer this presentation. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Um, it's great to be here. Although I live in Boston now and have for several years, I grew up in rural Kansas, and so it's great to get out of the city and be in a place with more space and fewer people. Um, so as he said, we're going to talk about preventing HIV for MSM, um, and I have no disclosures. Really, we're going to focus today on antiretroviral prevention of HIV, and there are three types of that. There's, of course, treatment as prevention, where we treat people with HIV in order to prevent them from spreading HIV to others. Um, there's pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, and then post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP. I'm not going to be saying much about PEP, but I'm happy to um, answer any questions, or, or uh, if you have comments about PEP, we can certainly talk about that. I would say that as in our clinical practice, as we're seeing more and more patients who are interested in PrEP, we often identify people who need PEP at that first visit and then get admission to PrEP later. Um, I also want to invite you to please ask questions or make comments at any time. You don't have to wait until the end. Just raise your hand and, and speak up. So we're going to talk a bit about the epidemiology of HIV infection among MSM. I imagine that this will be review for most of you and then talk about pre- and exposure prophylaxis and prevention for this population. We'll talk about some controversies in PrEP for MSM, and um, also look at some common clinical dilemmas. And then we'll spend some time, if we have enough time, talking about things that we're doing at the Fenway Institute, and also that other organizations are doing to try to um, increase antiretroviral prevention of HIV among MSM. So first, a few words about um, HIV in the U.S. And this slide comes from the CDC. But as I imagine that you're aware, um, for the first time in recent years, HIV diagnoses have been decreasing in the U.S. For a long time, we had the same number of diagnoses every year, but it started to decline. Um, it's actually declined in every population, including gay and bisexual men. But as you can see here, the smallest decline is among younger gay and bisexual men, ages 13 to 24 years. And gay and bisexual men still remain the most disproportionately affected population. So um, they account for around 70% of the HIV infections. Does anyone know what proportion of the U.S. population we think are gay and bisexual men? 
What's that? Just men. Just men, yeah. Okay. So actually, 2%, um, 2 to 4% is what, of the whole US population is what the CDC estimates. And so, of course, this is a striking disparity. You're probably also familiar with the racial and ethnic disparities in HIV incidents. The CDC, for instance, estimates that um, the chances that an African American gay or bisexual man will contract HIV in his lifetime to be one in two. Um, it's much less for white MSM. This is another way of looking at those data. Um, this comes from a survey of 20 cities around the US where they actually tested people for HIV. And they found that by age 40, one quarter of urban MSM were infected with HIV. Boston was one of these cities. And of course, this risk begins at a pretty young age. So look, 18 to 24 years are 12% for HIV infected. So whatever we do, I think, for HIV prevention, um, we also need to make sure that we're reaching very young people. So I'm going to move on now and um, talk about some clinical cases that um, will illustrate certain points about antiretroviral prevention and, um, and uh, help us discuss some controversies, especially with PrEP. Um, this first one is a pretty easy case. This is a 22-year-old man who was in generally good health when he came to see me, and he came for SPI screening. He reported insertive and receptive anal sex with two men in the past year, and he said he used uh, condoms most of the time in a normal exam, and he had asymptomatic rectal gonorrhea infection that was treated. His HIV positive. <coughs> and so, um, do you think he's a candidate for PrEP? Who would say yes? Okay, good, most people. Great. I do think he's a candidate. You mean after his HIV test? Yes, yes, it was negative, yeah. Um, and um, we'll talk a little bit about how well PrEP works. And then I want to spend some time talking about what are possible downsides of PrEP? And especially this question that I get asked a lot is, is it driving the increased incidence of other STIs that we're seeing? So I don't want to belabor the point about the efficacy of PrEP because this is now well known, um, but I think it's important to remember just how good the data is for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, one of the largest studies was the IPREC study of 2,500 NSM and a smaller number of um, transgender women where oral PrEP with tenofovirin per being reduced HIV incidence by around 44%, and much more in people who adhered well to the medication. Um, it's also been shown to work in serodiscordant heterosexual couples and then heterosexual adults who were recruited not as couples, but simply independently. And then in the real world, PrEP also works well. I think one of the key studies here was the PROUD study. This was a study of 545 MSN who were at high risk of HIV in the United Kingdom. Um, and um, they were randomized in an open-label way, so they, they knew if they were getting PrEP or not, to tenofovir anthracitidine. And the study actually had to be stopped early because 86%, there was an 86% risk reduction among the people who were randomized to early PrEP. And actually, no one who was taking PrEP as prescribed got HIV in this study. And then um, there was also a series from Kaiser and San Francisco of mostly MSM, um, this was now part of routine clinical care. It wasn't a clinical trial. And there were zero HIV infections in that cohort. They would have expected many more based on the risks of that population. You're probably aware, though, that PrEP is not foolproof. Um, there have been some cases of HIV acquisition described um, despite excellent adherence. And really, these fall into two different scenarios. The first is um, acquisition of drug-resistant HIV. So if someone's exposed to HIV that's resistant to one or more of the components and it's not very intercitamine, it's not going to work. <clears throat> it hasn't been seen. 
although fortunately that's pretty rare. Then there was also this case, has anyone heard of this case from Amsterdam? Of a man who had a very high number of exposures. Um, he had very good drug levels for tenofovir. He was actually in a study of PrEP, but he still contracted HIV. It was seemed to be wild type HIV. Um, and he had a very atypical seroconversion pattern. Um, so he had a, a positive um, antibody antigen test, but a negative viral load. Um, and then they stopped PrEP and his viral load became positive. And so it's a reminder that if you have someone on PrEP and there is some indication that they might have HIV, it can be a little bit difficult initially to figure out um, if they truly have it or not. So um, the other thing I wanted to use this case to talk about was, um, is PrEP contributing to the increased risk of STIs that we're seeing in the US? And I was um, speaking earlier with some of you when we were talking about the increase in STIs that's being seen here in New Hampshire, uh, we also see it in Massachusetts, really across the US. These data come from the CDC, and it shows you that the rate of diagnosis of chlamydia is increasing among both men and women. This is the same graph for gonorrhea, also increasing in men more than women. And the same graph for syphilis, um, the black line is men. The dotted line up here is the male-to-female ratio. So again, syphilis is also increasing. And most of these cases are occurring among men, at least for gonorrhea and syphilis. Um, so the um, MSM or the dark blue bar in this graph, you can see that at these various ages, um, a majority of infections are among MSM. The same for syphilis. Chlamydia, the story is a little bit different. Um, in younger people, chlamydia is more common among heterosexuals, and then at older ages, it becomes more common among MSM. And so the question then is, does PrEP lead to increased sexual risk behavior? And I'll actually have you vote. Who would say yes? Okay, who would say no? All right, so most people say no. Some people said yes. I think it probably does to some extent, um, and we have some data to support that. Um, recall the crowd study that I mentioned, that was the one in the United Kingdom of MSM who were at high risk for HIV and were randomized to either PrEP right away or they had to wait. So in this study, the people who got PrEP right away are in the dark blue bars, and those who had to wait for a year were in the red. Um, the people who got it right away actually reported more condomless anal sex partners. Um, they also had a trend towards having more STIs. Although um, there were large numbers of STIs in both groups, and so it wasn't just limited to the group who got PrEP right away. And then from that Kaiser study that I mentioned, the one in San Francisco, a slim majority of people said that their condoms did not change when they were on PrEP. But 41% actually reported decreasing their condom usage. And there's been a meta-analysis also um, that suggests that there's a, a higher incidence of STIs among people who are on PrEP. Now, um, is you know, PrEP causing all of this, um, especially this dramatic increase in STIs that we're seeing? I think the answer is probably no. It may be a small contributor. And the reason is this. Um, this is a graph of condomless sex at the last sexual encounter among MSM. And this is HIV positive, HIV negative, and then HIV unknown. And you can see that not using a condom at last sex has been going up for years, at least since 2005. This is not a new phenomenon. PrEP was approved by the FDA in 2012, um, so um, you know, long after this trend began. So again, PrEP may be contributing to this, um, but is not the sole cause. 
And that's also shown by this graph, the one I showed you before of syphilis, although you could look at the same graph for chlamydia or gonorrhea. Syphilis um, started to go up in around 2000. Um, PrEP, again, was approved by the FDA in 2012 and really isn't that common, um, especially for the first few years after approval. So I don't think we can um, blame PrEP um, for these changes. So in my mind, it's clear that some PrEP users will increase sexual risk behavior, but the number of PrEP users is relatively small and could not account for this change. Um, and I also want to make the point that really PrEP may actually be an STI control intervention. It's really a sexual health program when people are on PrEP. It's not just a pill. And there is some modeling data to support that. So um, this might be a little bit confusing, but um, I can walk you through it. This x-axis shows the proportion of a population of MSM that is receiving PrEP. So for instance, this is 40% right here. The y-axis is the, the degree of risk compensation. So if um, more than 80% of people are not using condoms, it's up here. If just 20% are not using condoms in the setting of PrEP, it's here. Um, and from, from um, various um, surveys, we estimate the risk compensation to be about 40%. So if, for instance, we got 40% of MSM who needed it on PrEP, and there was 40% decrease in condom usage, but if you look over here, you would see that you could reduce the incidence of gonorrhea and chlamydia by about 40% over 10 years. And the reason for that is that when people are on PrEP, they ideally are being screened for STIs um, at least every three months, and so you're catching STIs and treating them before they might pass them on to others. This is another graph from that modeling study, um, and I want you to focus on the uh, one on the left-hand side. So um, this shows the incidence of gonorrhea and chlamydia with different screening intervals for, for STIs and people on PrEP. The original um, PrEP guidelines recommended every six-month screening, and that would be the, the green line here. Um, the newer set of guidelines recommends every three-month screening. That's the dark blue line here, and it shows how much you could decrease the incidence of these STIs over time um, by getting more MSM who are at risk for HIV onto PrEP. Um, so as I mentioned, the most recent iteration of the CDC's PrEP guide guidelines recommends every three-month screening for MSM for STIs. Are you doing that in, in your clinical practice here? We've been doing that for the most part for our MSM as well. Um, and this um, recommendation comes in part from some studies that have shown that if you only did every six-month screening of STIs, you would miss or delay diagnosis of about a third of gonorrhea cases, around 40% of chlamydia, and then a fifth of syphilis infections. And people would, of course, be passing these on potentially in that time. Um, just a reminder as well, I, I imagine that you do this already, but um, it's important to do extragenital testing of STIs for MSM. And there's been a, a fairly significant body of research to show that if you don't do that, you might miss a large proportion of these infections. 83% of gonorrhea, 76% of chlamydia infections. Um, I was, are you doing three-site testing on MSM needed? Um, that's great. I was at a conference recently, and there was a speaker from Louisiana who said that they, their Medicaid program only pays for two sites. And so they have to kind of negotiate with the patient about which two sites they think are most likely to be infected. <laughs> but it's, it's great that you're doing three-site testing. So uh, this patient initiates PrEP, and after 12 months, remains HIV negative. He says that he's now in a monogamous relationship with another man who has HIV but is virologically suppressed on ART. 
and they're not using condoms for sex. And so the question then is, is PrEP worthwhile for him now? That's probably the most common question I get about pre-exposure prophylaxis. So who would say, um, assuming that everything he's told you is true, that he should remain on PrEP? And who would say he could stop it? All right, good. I agree with the latter group. So should I recommend PrEP for serodifferent couples? Well, HIV treatment very readily prevents transmission. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And it's probably not cost-effective in that case from a societal perspective. Um, we all know that viral rebound can occur, and that, of course, may be a scenario where someone could transmit. I recently had a patient who had not had a detectable viral load in 10 years, um, and then someone prescribed um, iron to him for restless leg syndrome, and it interacted with his antiretrovirals, and he developed viremia um, after essentially 10 years of being suppressed. And so we all know that this can happen, although it's not common. People may not be monogamous, um, and if our patient has other sexual partners, that might be a reason to um, continue PrEP. And then many patients say that they want to control their HIV risk themselves. They don't want to have to rely on their partners for liability taking their medications. Has anyone, um, any patient that you've had kind of said that this is why they want to be on PrEP? I think that this is fairly common. And in my mind, that's, that's okay. Still, it remains the case that, as you know, viral suppression generally prevents sexual transmission of HIV. Um, I imagine you're familiar with the HPTN 052 study a randomized trial of heterosexual adults who, um, in which um, there were serodifferent couples, and the person with HIV in those couples was randomized to get HIV treatment right away or to wait. Um, and immediate ART reduced the within-couple HIV transmission by 93%. And in fact, there were no transmissions when the index partner, the one with HIV, was virologically suppressed. We didn't have the same level of data for MSM until more recently, um, but you may have seen the partner study published in JAMA, of both heterosexual and MSM couples. Um, and in those couples, there were 58,000 episodes of condomless sex over the course of their follow-up. And again, there were zero within couple transmissions. Some people, I think around 10, got HIV, but it wasn't from their partner, it was from someone else. And that underscores this issue of if the patient's not monogamous, then um, he might have to protect him from HIV from others. And this, of course, has not had also been kind of shown from an ecological perspective. So um, this is data from San Francisco, where they really tried to roll out ART to everyone who has HIV. And they have this, um, this rapid start program, where if you're diagnosed with HIV, they try to get you on antiretrovirals right away. Um, San Francisco also um, was a site of a lot of the PrEP studies. And there's been wide dissemination of PrEP in San Francisco. And it, um, at the same time, we're seeing less condom use among MSM that the, um, the number of new diagnoses in San Francisco has dropped by about 50% um, since 2006. What, what is the trend in New Hampshire? Does anyone know? Has HIV been declining here as well? It's pretty much flat. Pretty much flat. And how many cases are you having every year? This year, but not many. 36, um, okay. give or take. Got it. But there was a blip at the beginning of this year that <clears throat> Any comments or questions about that? Yeah, I got a question. Yep. Uh, you, you gave us two examples of breakthrough infection. Yeah. Uh, have they had any impact on U equals U and disseminating that for patients? So um, the question is two examples of breakthrough infection, and have they had any impact on U equals U? 
And I would say no, because the U equals U pertains more to people who are um, suppressed on people who have HIV and are undetectable on treatment. The, um, the cases that I mentioned, um, I guess we don't necessarily know about the partner, um, although we presume that in the first case of the person who acquired drug-resistant HIV that they were not suppressed and have drug-resistant HIV. And in the second case, I don't think we know who that person got HIV from, but um, that person was also presumably not suppressed. Now, I would say that there's never been a fully confirmed case of HIV transmission from a suppressed person to someone else via a sexual route. And so I think we still think that U equals U generally is true. Um, and those two cases of PrEP failures um, don't really change that. I don't know if anyone has a different opinion about that. Do you recommend continued screening of once uh, somebody's reached? It, it, it's a six month interval, being ARV, before you mm -hmm. uh, sure. Is it, what do you recommend now? Uh, regular testing at three month intervals to ensure that the uh, uh, usage of the drug is being taken. You, you mean for HIV treatment as prevention? Yeah. So um, the question is. Um, you know, once someone is suppressed or after a six-month period on their antiretrovirals, would I recommend every three-month testing of their viral load to make sure that they stay suppressed? Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, for that person's health alone, they would probably need their viral load checked, you know, every six months-ish, um, maybe more often. If This is not based on guidelines, but if I had a patient or who um, was really relying on treatment as prevention to protect their partners, I might check their viral load more often than every six months. And that's, that's my practice. I'm just going to make sure. Um, perhaps every three months, or if there's some concern more often than that. But that's, I know, as far as I know, there are no guidelines that support that, but I think it makes sense. If really, if a couple, for instance, is relying on HIV treatment to protect both of them, then it's reasonable to me to, to check their viral load fairly frequently. Does anyone have a different practice with that? I think it's. It's highly variable depending on the patient. You know, if you have a patient who's had suppressed yeah. virus 50 times in a row for the last 10 years, um, you know, you pointed out with the one case, things can happen, but, um, you know, if someone is, is that um, documented to be yeah. as consistently <clears throat> super adherent, I would do every six months, so. Yeah. One thing I've also found is that many of my patients seem to have already decided this on their own. You know, they're, they're not often coming to me and asking me, you know, the partner or, or the patient themselves saying, you know, should, my, should we stop using condoms? They've often already decided that's what they're going to do, and they, they may ask for my blessing or not. There's a flip side to that, though, is there's a, a less connected group of people who hasn't heard this information yet, and it's quite remarkable, I find, talking to people and telling them this information. I mean, I've had tears. I've yeah. Had, uh, the, yeah. The response to suddenly yeah. not feeling like there's HIV coursing through their body yeah. is quite remarkable, I think. But that's, I think it's really stigma erasing yes. this message. Um, and, you know, I think some people have belief that they are a vector of disease, and being told that they're not is, I think, very powerful. Mm -hmm. Any other comments or questions? Well, I think that that's an understatement of what you're saying. I mean, um, I, I came from a meeting with, with a number of HIV uh, women, and the realization of it was, uh, 
it, it freed them. Yeah. First time in 20, 30 years. Yeah. I, I've never seen such a, an incredible outpouring reaction uh, as the real ramifications were came through. So it's phenomenal. Yeah. I was on the CDC website the other day, though, because I sort of say even the CDC is saying this now, and, and um, I was looking at one of the fact sheets, and they're continuing to um, say, uh, like, even though you're taking your meds, that doesn't mean you can't. If they aren't fully um, putting that on the patient fact sheets, yeah. there's still leaving some room for a little more room than I would have expected. Um, for yeah, you know, I, um, I feel like there's kind of different information in different places from the CDC. For instance, the... Um, the CDC statements about um, conception in people who have HIV, you know, talk about how if, um, for instance, if the, um, uh, the man has HIV and the woman does not and they want to have a child and he's suppressed and there's really not, no role for PrEP in her. Like, so I, you know, that's not a patient-facing document, but I think you're right that there is kind of various information in different places. So it's, I don't know if you were in the, the Amsterdam conference. No. Yeah. So there's an update on the partner study where they um, uh, wanted to narrow the confidence interval for men who have sex with men to be wider than for heterosexuals. So they um, yep. <coughs> did, did a second study with just MSM. And the, number, the answer was the same. Zero. Yep. Yep. With higher confidence intervals. <coughs> and uh, the presenter, uh, who's English, said basically it's time to stop equivocating. Yeah. yeah. The number is zero. Yeah, but maybe in that population, but the truth is, is that the U equals U hasn't really been tested in people that are on it, and all of a sudden, the woman becomes pregnant. Uh, but endocrine changes. Uh, aging is a factor, too. Uh, the acquisition of other diseases, um, whether it's cancer or things like that, these are things that uh, uh, really need to be defined going forward. But the information that's available with these match studies and Cohen's work and all this other stuff really does indicate that uh, it's very good. But I think that's where the equivocation is coming from, that uh, don't have more. You know, even our trials in, in Africa were so selective in terms of the populations that we excluded half of the people. So, so I think that's, that's where, where we're at. Any other comments or questions? All right, does anyone here care for adolescents? No? One person? Okay. <laughs> so um, here's a case of a 17-year-old man who presents to the clinic after a sexual partner said that he had chlamydia. And this patient has multiple male partners. He rarely uses condoms. He asks about PrEP, as he says many of his friends take it. And so the question is, would you prescribe PrEP to an adolescent who was at risk for HIV? And then what special considerations apply to PrEP use in this population? So the one person who, <laughs> who sees adolescents, would you think about prep for this patient? Think about it. Okay. Um, Most control is not as great, and reliability may not be as great. Yeah. So there have been at least two studies of prep for adolescents in the US. Um, one was among 15 to 17-year-olds. Another was 18 to 22-year-olds. In general, in these studies, these were for MSM, um, and uh, the studies had a large proportion of um, non-white MSM in them. The HIV incidence was very high, 6.4 per 100 person years in one study. That's you know, the same or higher than the HIV incidence in many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. 
um, and then 3.9 group. And adherence was kind of so-so in these studies. Um, so initially, around 55 to 60% were adherent after one month, and then that really goes around to around a third at a year. Um, this drop-off in adherence really seemed to occur when they spaced the study visits out from every month to every three months. And so I think that there are some special considerations for PrEP in adolescence. Um, as you probably heard, tenofovirin prostatidine for PrEP is now approved for people who are adolescents who weigh more than 77 pounds. That's a new development this year. Um, there are some concerns about the effects of tenofovir on bone mineral density. We know that tenofovir reduces the bone mineral density by around 1 or 2%. Um, it doesn't seem to be worse in adolescents, but um, there are concerns that these people are still growing, and so maybe their peak tone bone mass will be less than it otherwise would. I actually think that this is the biggest um, question about PrEP for adolescents, is whether or not to obtain parental consent. I would say that we have um, some adolescents on PrEP in our clinic, and um, the providers in general for these patients have thought that it was um, detrimental to the patient to obtain parental consent, and so it's considered them to be a mature minor and prescribed anyway, but that's not, there's no general consensus about that. And then we, we saw the data about adherence support, and perhaps more frequent visits would be useful in this population. Any comments or questions about that? When, when is uh, parental consent usually waived for uh, oral contraceptives? I mean, I'm sure it's variable, but... <clears throat> well, um, you know, I, I myself don't care for adolescents, but I think that, um, you know, people who are adolescents can get STI testing and treatment, for instance, without parental consent. Um, and I think that other, other interventions um, have not always been subsumed under that. Um, that rubric, but if someone else wants to comment on that, I'll refer to that. Yep. Has anyone looked at uh, adherence in various populations as a sort of, what is the detriment to less adherence? If, on you know, a population basis, you probably are preventing a number yep. of infections. Um, certainly, there may not be a major and I would say what we know in terms of adherence is that um, we know that in, like in the IPREP study, um, in the open label extension, if you had four or more doses of PrEP per week for blood levels compatible with that, no one got HIV. And PrEP use actually tracked with risk, so people were more likely to take it the riskier their reported behaviors were. Um, also, in the group who had just two or three doses per week, there was still a lot of protection against HIV. And so, you know, I don't think that, that imperfect adherence is, is you know, um, the end of, of PrEP for these patients by any means. Yeah, I mean, and so I guess that, you know, because we all have adult patients that are not terribly adherent, so I guess that's one of the questions moving forward. You know, should we hold that PrEP? Well, um, so a related question is also, um, you know, the, the CDC, for instance, recommends daily prep for people, um, but we do have a fair bit of data about on-demand or event-driven prep. Has anyone recommended that or, or had a patient who used that before? So that might be an option for people who, you know, it would be hard for them to take a pill every day or they simply don't want to, and they could, could take pills around um, the time of exposure. That's actually one way that prep has been approved in Europe, for instance. So if you're in France and you want prep, they'll ask you do you want daily or on demand, and you can get to the side. 
Any other comments or questions? Uh, what are the data on not fear resistance among the zero conversions? Is, a, is it a, problem, a big problem or not as much? It's not a big problem. Um, you know, the, that's mostly been seen in people who unknowingly had acute HIV at the time that they started PrEP. And the most common mutation is, of course, M184B. Um, their resistance is a little bit less common, but it's not been a major problem. Any other comments or questions? Yeah. Is there um, any data yet on the use of TAF as part of oh. the formation of And you're a plant. <laughs> this is a 27-year-old man. Um, who has three sexual partners and doesn't consistently use condoms. He had secondary syphilis three months ago. He also has a history of IgA nephropathy. And his, he's HIV negative, but his serum creatinine is 1.7, his BGFR is 40. And so would you give him or recommend to him TAP FTC for PrEP? Who would say yes? Who would say no? <laughs> well, most people aren't voting. <laughs> so you, you wouldn't use TDF FTC. Right? His DFR is probably too low if that's what it consistently is for TDF FTC. And my take on it is that there's probably not enough evidence yet of TAP FTC for PrEP, although I think it probably will work. Um, we do have some animal data. Um, monkeys who were exposed to HIV and were given TAP FTC were protected, and of course, the control animals became infected. There's um, one um, pharmacokinetic study among women who got TAP. Um, and they, the concentrations that's not here were undetectable in 82% of their tissue samples, but this is again after one dose. And um, also we don't know necessarily what this means in terms of HIV prevention, because we don't know what levels are needed in different tissues to prevent HIV, or where exactly um, the site of PrEP action is. So as you're probably aware, there is a large randomized control trial going on um, comparing TAP-FDC to TDF-FDC for PrEP in MSM. I personally wouldn't use it yet. But, um, but I, I have some colleagues who have used it in a few scenarios. It was surprising thing in that study was that uh, it took six or seven treatments in order to get the cervical vaginal rectal, uh, rectal uh, concentrations up yeah. uh, to levels that would be deemed protected from the uh, biopsy studies. So the compartmentalization is really a fact yeah. that's still being explored. And if it does work, then will there be some recommendation about how long people have to be on it, for instance, for that reason? I, I don't know. But. All right, here's another case. This is a 48-year-old man on prep. He says that uh, he has sex mostly when he's traveling. That's about four times to five times per year. Um, but he's otherwise not sexually active. And he wants to just take prep in the context of his travels. And so um, who, who would... Um, endorse or recommend um, on-demand prep for this patient? Okay, a few people are raising their hands. Who would say definitely not? Okay. So I imagine you're familiar with the Ypergay study of on-demand prep. This was done in 400 MSN who were at high risk for HIV, and they got this event-driven prep or a placebo. And this study was stopped early, actually, after the proud results were available, um, because there was an 86% risk reduction in HIV. And they call this regimen the 2-1-1 regimen, um, which worked like this. If sex happened on Wednesday, then someone was supposed to take two pills of nocturnal intracytidine two to 24 hours before sex, and then once daily for two days afterwards. 
and if sex continued, then they would, or they had subsequent episodes, then they would take a day, a pill a day, until their last episode, and then take the two post-exposure pills. Um, the issue with this study, though, is that um, the men in the study um, reported um, about 10 episodes of sex per month, and they took about 15 doses of PrEP per month. And so they were probably essentially always on it, especially because tenofovir has a very long intracellular half-life. And this harkens back to the data that we talked about before, people who were taking even just two or three doses of PrEP per week were significantly protected against HIV. And so there's been some additional data to look at less frequent sex, perhaps like the patient in our case. Um, they did an analysis of the men in the Infergay study who had fewer or less frequent exposures, and they seemed to be protected as well. And then there was a subsequent study called Prevenir, done in Paris, of around 1,400 MSM. And those MSM could decide, were they going to use daily dosing or on-demand dosing? Um, about 44% selected the daily dosing, and 53% selected the on-demand dosing. And these men had sex less often than the men in the Ypres study. So in the on-demand group, it was just twice per month, um, median. And there were zero HIV infections in this population. They would have expected at least 85, based on the um, uh, comparison to the Ypres study. So um, the most recent iteration of the IAS guidelines actually lists on-demand PrEP as an alternative strategy for MSM to have infrequent sexual exposures using this 2-1-1 dosing regimen that was studied in the Ypres trial. But of course, we don't know anything about this for women. Um, we don't know, or we wouldn't recommend this in people with hepatitis B because we'd be providing kind of uh, intermittent adherence to a medication that treats hepatitis B as well. So interestingly, I've actually never had a patient request on-demand PrEP. Um, yet, um, but I, I think you know we now have a fair bit of data that it works, and um, an alternative in our guidelines that mentions this as a possibility. Any comments or questions about that? Yeah. I was just going to add. It seems like the next frontier will be. I I don't care for patients who are HIV negative. I only have HIV yep. positive patients, but I could imagine the patient saying. I need to have a little supply of extra medicine because I have a partner who I visit four times a year, and I, you know, we, we supply the partner with their medicine. Yeah. And I wonder if people at Fenway or others are sort of dealing with this. And perhaps patients do it anyway. They have tenofovir, and yeah, they share it. I, I just wonder how that will evolve. And yeah, that, and that no, obviously I, um, gets us out of the world of doing the proper testing right. and all the other stuff yeah. that we want to do. I would be worried about that because we couldn't do that testing on the. Other person, the HIV test and the creatinine and so forth. But um, you know, I have a sense that some patients do that already. You know, some of my patients have told me that they do that. Um, I don't recommend that right now because of that testing issue. Any other comments or questions? I was just going to say, it feels like there's two very different types of on-demand prep here. One is I'm going on vacation uh, in. Uh, November, and I know I'm going to have sex, and I don't know who it's with. Yeah. And so, in some sense, that's not really on demand. It's sort of planned. Yeah. So, with that person, I would still, since the data isn't as solid, intermittent prep when it's truly intermittent, I would still give that person start them a week before yeah. and take it for a month after. Yeah. While someone who's, you know, I don't know, a and a half dozen times in the next month, you know, the, the true intermittent prep, um, the 
and that, that's when they'll go ahead and do this and say, you know, the data is what it is, and you know, clearly yeah. has efficacy and hopefully pretty good efficacy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we, um, I've had some patients who kind of have a risk vacation, basically, where they go on a cruise or something and they know that they're going to potentially have a lot of exposure, and so we do what you said. I put them on prep for a week before they go, and then they continue it every day while they're there, and then I actually have them continue for seven days afterward. That's what the most recent IAS guidelines say, but I don't think anyone knows exactly how long that post-exposure period should be, so it be a month as well. It makes it hard to think about the routine testing. You know, I mean, no. you have, some of the people are sort of wishful, wishful folks. And yeah. Like, every time they come in, like every three months, they still haven't had sex. Right. And, and so then you start thinking this is not in their medical best interest to be exposed yeah. to toxicity that they don't yeah. have risk. Right. But then it just sort of, it, and if really it's really intermittent, are you, how, how often you having them come back? And, yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, I think if I had, someone who truly just had that one defined period of risk, I'd probably test them up to three months after that time. But you know, also a lot of these people, they come in and they want prep for some vacation, but when you ask them a lot, you realize that actually maybe there's some more ongoing need for it and not just for the vacation. Any other comments or questions? So um, we're gonna shift gears a little bit now and talk about maybe from more of a public health perspective or a clinical perspective, how to try to ramp up and scale up some of these HIV prevention interventions. Um, so there have been a few different studies over time about how many people are using PrEP in the US. This is a more recent one, um, which said that around, at the end of 2017, there were 70,000 people who were taking PrEP in the US. The vast majority were men, um, and there was a very small number of women, around 2,000 women. This study didn't look at racial and ethnic disparities, but other studies have shown that, that um, a majority of people taking PrEP are white, um, and of course we know that, that HIV disproportionately burdens people who are non-white. And so even though there was this you know, fairly significant number of people taking PrEP, um, this really pales in comparison to what we estimate the need to be. Um, the red bar here is the estimated need of PrEP among MSM by the CDC. There are 814,000 MSM in the U.S. who they think might need it. And then just around 67,000 were taking PrEP at the end of, um, of 2017. So what can we do about this? And like you, I work in an HIV practice where, in general, we don't have a big pipeline of HIV-negative patients. Um, we're mostly seeing people who have HIV. And so I'm not sure that you know us doing this or that we are going to be the ones who really um, scale up PrEP for the US population. And we have had a project at the Fenway um, where we're trying to do academic detailing for PrEP. Are you familiar with academic detailing? So um, basically this is trying to use the techniques of the pharmaceutical industry with um, you know, people who go and meet with doctors or other clinicians and have flashy materials and pens and tote bags and things. But um, you know, not funding this through a drug company, funding it through grants and, and trying to base what we recommend off of the best data. And we got this idea from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and developed a PrEP action kit um, that we've been distributing around New England um, that talks about how to prescribe PrEP and, um, and various kind of scenarios and, and clinical dilemmas that we discussed. 
we've probably given away several thousand of these, and we've met up one-on-one -on -one with at least 300 clinicians. And we don't know if this has had an impact or not, but we hope so. Many of the clinicians we've met with are not HIV providers, and so we're hoping that we can kind of increase PrEP prescribing at community health centers and by family doctors and internists and so forth. Are you tracking this prescription behavior to like a pharmaceutical industry? I wish we could, but we haven't been doing that. That would be interesting. We, the uh, New Hampshire um, PrEP committee has been trying to look at tracking <coughs> prescription data, and it's really not easy to do. Yeah. But they would call to other states to ask about it, and it's not easy. Yeah. <coughs> Um, and then, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the approach that New York City has taken to PrEP, but I think it's very interesting. They've kind of pushed forward what they call a status-neutral approach to STI and HIV services, especially for MSM. And the idea is that um, many MSM who have HIV or who have a high risk of HIV have a similar need for sexual health services. You know, they've, they've, those groups both need frequent STI testing. They both could benefit from antiretrovirals in one form or another. And so what they've tried to do is to um, reinvigorate their sexual health clinics and um, obviously provide STI testing and treatment, but also be able to start PrEP and PEP and ART in those clinics and then link people to longitudinal care if they're HIV negative or HIV positive. Um, and they've had some success with that. They also have a marketing campaign called PlaySure that you know, features people who are kind of talking about what they use to prevent um, HIV transmission or acquisition of this couple in the, in the picture. And so um, we're actually trying to do something similar at Mass General with our STD clinic that I help direct. Um, and I'll give you an example of that in a moment. Um, but as a lead into that, when thinking, I think, about how to incorporate PrEP and HIV prevention into clinical care, there are really four things that need to be done. One is identifying patients. And if you are a practice that treats primarily HIV-positive patients, you may not necessarily see a lot of patients who could benefit. The other is doing the initial and the follow-up visits and helping people adhere to the medication and to the laboratory testing that has to happen. Now, we've actually found that the, the top three, or at least these two, are pretty easy, but trying to get patients the financial assistance or the drug assistance they need is probably the most um, complicated and time-consuming thing. Um, and so that often occupies a lot of the time that we spend on prep. So let me give you the example of our clinic. We are a primary care and HIV clinic in Boston with 10 doctors and multiple trainees. And we're physically co-located with a DPH-funded STD clinic. And that's really where most of our PrEP patients come from. And that clinic is staffed by three nurse practitioners. And we're lucky to have on-site nursing and phlebotomy and a benefits coordinator. And so almost all of our PrEP patients now come from the STD clinic. People are coming for STD testing or treatment. We recognize that they're at high risk for HIV and could benefit from PrEP, or they simply come seeking PrEP. Um, I would say that that's where most of our patients come from. Occasionally, there's self-referral or people who see advertisements of pride. It's actually rare that we have a partner of an HIV-infecting person in our clinic who, who wants PrEP. And so we've started this protocol that I'll say a little bit more about in a moment, where we start PrEP on someone the moment that they're there at our clinic, when they come into the SD clinic for testing or treatment. Then we have them follow up with a doctor, and then they, they kind of alternate going forward seeing a doc or a nurse practitioner in the STD clinic. We have some nurses who have really championed this and helped with um, medication and laboratory adherence. And then we're lucky to have a community health worker who also helps people get onto PrEP in terms of the, um, 
the benefits navigation and the insurance parts. Um, and so the community health worker or our benefits coordinator help with that part. And as a key component of this, we've started giving people prep um, when they first come to the clinic. Um, so um, if they want prep and they really could benefit from it, then our NP will counsel them. We'll send all their labs right away. And we'll go ahead and give them a prescription after we um, you know, make sure that they um, won't get a good bill you know, once we enroll them in an insurance program or in a drug assistance program. When we have them follow the doctor. This generally works very well. I would say the one downside is that um, this is often a very lengthy visit for the nurse practitioner and the patient when you're trying to do all these things at once. Any questions or comments about that? Yeah, do you run into the problem with stigma for them walking into a clinic like this? I mean, in, at Brown, they've had a real problem with the, the, the heterosexual population. Um, I've had to fold the clinic into a general gynecological environment yeah. so that people didn't sit in the, in the waiting room and be identified. So, you know, in, um, I would say we haven't had huge problems with stigma, and I'll get, tell you the reason why, but I don't think we've also been very successful at getting heterosexual people who can benefit from PrEP onto PrEP. And almost all of the people who we have on PrEP are MSM, who are often seeking that, or for whom it's kind of a thing that their friends and their community talks about, and so they don't you know, see it as, as necessarily being that stigmatized. Our clinic, I think, benefits from the fact that um, it's not just an STD clinic or a prep clinic, but people are there for all sorts of other things. We have a travel clinic at the same site, so people are waiting for vaccines to go to Ghana, or they're waiting for prep, and no one knows who's who. So that's pretty good. Um, yeah. Any other comments or questions? What's the, I'm curious, that why, what, what's the difference between MD and NP, and why, why not, what, what's, that seems redundant. Yeah, I think so too. Um, that wasn't my design. Um, <laughs> and we're trying to change it, but, um, you know, part of the, um, to be honest, I think there's actually a, um, the practice um, administrators really designed that based off of a, um, of the finances, because our NPs are funded by the DPH, and so care is essentially provided for free um, there, and, and otherwise the clinic ends up doing a lot of work for these patients without ever getting reimbursed. So. But um, we're actually trying to develop this into a more NP-only longitudinal care model. I should also say, um, often these patients don't have a primary care doctor, and so we've we've kind of made a network around MGH of primary care doctors who want to care for patients on PrEP. And so um, they often don't end up following up in our clinic with a follow-up with a PCP in the MGH realm who does PrEP and then can kind of take things going forward. So it's um, also novel that you're bringing people back in the month. Yeah. Because there's too much going on in the first visit and you think people could benefit from further discussion and risk assessment? Or? So um, I personally don't think that they have to come back in a month. If it were up to me only, I would have them come back in three months. They could come back in a month if they needed to for some reason. Um, but the original rationale for that was that they wanted them to meet the provider who might then call them longitudinally relatively soon. But um, I think that that's not always necessary. Do you have any numbers yet on the retention? Yep. Well, it's um, it's a little bit complicated because um, Massachusetts 
if you are a person in Massachusetts who does not qualify for Medicaid and you don't have commercial insurance and, and don't make enough money or don't have that to be an option, then you're put in what they call this health connector plan. And based on where you live and how much you want to pay for that plan, um, you're kind of assigned to a medical center. Um, so some patients get, essentially get assigned to MGH, some get assigned to um, Boston Medical Center and so forth. And so um, because our STD clinic is DPH funded, people can come there without regard to what their insurance status is. So we identify a fair number of people who cannot follow up at MGH, essentially. Mm -hmm. So we start them on PrEP, and then we arrange for them to follow up at, at Boston Medical Center. That's the most common scenario. And we don't always know if they make it there. We try to get them an appointment before they leave, but we don't know. Um, <clears throat> I would say that um, probably 15 to 20% of our patients fall into that category, and so we simply don't know what happens to them. Um, of the patients who plan to follow up at MGH, um, I would say that 80 or 85% of them actually make it to their first visit. We're trying to improve that with our community health worker. But we do lose some people between when, um, when we start with them and when they're supposed to come back. How does the prescribing happen? I mean, how are they covered for the actual prescription to get that first bill? So, um, for the most part, getting people the medication is not a problem because either their insurance covers it, Medicaid covers it, or the manufacturer's assistance program covers it, or we have this thing called PrepDAP that um, is like that drug assistance program for PrEP in Massachusetts that covers it. But the real challenge with many of these patients is that um, when they follow up for care, a lot of them are, are young men who have a very high deductible insurance policy, and so they end up getting a big bill for um, clinic visits or for labs. Um, and so that's been a bigger barrier, actually, and so one thing that we've, um, we've done, at least in terms of starting prep, is that we, uh, I didn't know this actually until we tried this, but the MGH lab has a standard rate of, for a lab test at cost that they'll charge a patient who has no insurance. And then there's a research rate, which is often 90% less than the standard rate. And so we negotiated with the MGH laboratory to give us the research rate on creatinine and hepatitis B testing. The rest of the testing can go to the state lab for free, essentially. Um, and so a creatinine and hepatitis B test is just 26 bucks uh, a pop for that. And, um, and then we also negotiated with the state to allow us to use some of our grant funding to pay for that for people who, couldn't, who didn't have insurance and couldn't otherwise get it. And so that's what we've been doing for, um, for that issue. But really, for many of these patients in follow-up, it's the clinic visits and the labs that are costly and not the medication. If you look at the 18 to 26-year-olds who are so high-risk, they are, if they have the insurance, it's through their parents. Yep. And so then the explanation of benefits goes to the parents. Yeah, although um, there was a recent bill in Massachusetts called the Patch Bill. Have you heard about this? <coughs> That's a bill which says that they will not send an explanation of benefits to the person who did not receive the services. So they, they will not send an explanation of benefits to you know, your partner or to the subscriber if that wasn't the person who got the services. But and this is kind of annoying, the patient has to call and request they don't send it. <laughs> so um, there, that's, I think, a, a solution, but not a perfect one. Any other questions or comments? All right. Well, um, thank you very much. I'm happy to take any other questions or comments that you have. Um,
so much agree with you that, um, that you know, there's a huge benefit to, to prep, obviously. Um, yet I find myself struggling that I feel like, are we following the cardiologist in medicalizing high risk sexual behavior, giving people another pill? Yeah. And do you think that curve of increased sexual transmitted disease or high risk sexual behavior is ever going to bend again, or is that just? So I don't know if the curve will ever bend again. Um, and I do sometimes share your concerns that we're medicalizing sexual behavior in general. But um, the problem is that PrEP is a medical intervention. You know, it's a pill that has side effects that requires periodic monitoring. Not sure that we have to monitor it as closely as current guidelines suggest. Um, but until we have an intervention that is in some ways less medical, mm -hmm. um, I think that's what we have. Yeah. And you don't think it comes at the cost of other interventions to help people achieve a healthy sexual life? Well, I, you know, I would say, um, that many of the interventions that we've had before, um, you know, they, I think that they reached a kind of plateau of effectiveness. You know, we were having the same number of HIV infections every year. Yeah. And in some ways, I think PrEP has actually removed a lot of anxiety from people's sexual lives, mm -hmm. um, because now they can be relatively sure that they're not going to contract a potentially fatal and lifelong illness from having sex. Right. And that's something that they couldn't necessarily, yeah. you know, know before. Right. How do these efforts dovetail with early diagnosis, yeah, I think that's definitely true. And um, I, I should mention that we're trying to do a lot in terms of starting ART right away in people who be diagnosed with HIV. But um, I think it's really complementary now. And you're right. I mean, it, from a you know cost and societal perspective, if we could get everyone who had HIV on treatment, then I think that that would mostly be it. We wouldn't need a lot of these other things. But um, we know that there are people who are not diagnosed and who are not being treated. We still need other things like PrEP. I think there's also a, a sex positive aspect to it in that a lot of people come in have never had conversations about sex with a provider before. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're not a high risk um, practice. And a lot of people have never asked the kind of questions that sort of have this space carved out to really uh, have a real conversation about what they're doing and how they're doing it and what what it all means, what the role of alcohol is involved with it, and all those kind of things. So I think that there's a, we see a lot of people who are just sort of like, wow, I've never I've never had this conversation before. Right. Yeah. And it seems like there's a a, a sex positive um, part of that. Mm. It's just funny that we couldn't we weren't able to have that conversation with other people. Um, I mean, you can, you know, I mean, I think it's very, it's one of that one little piece. Of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then not everyone chooses the pill. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, it really is, a, I think, a valuable educational moment. All right, thank you. Thank, thank you. you.